and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 8, The Medium is the Message, with our special guest, Stephen P. Ryder. I'm Jonathan Mengus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas. Joining me today in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is Howard Brown. Hi, Howard. How are you doing, John? Glad to be here as always, buddy. Glad to have you here. And in Hull is Mike Covell. Hi, Hi Jonathan. It's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to have you also. And in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, is Robert McLaughlin. Hi, Robert. Hi, Jonathan. Great to be here. Good to have you. And joining us today in St. Louis, Missouri, is Andrew Spalick. Hi. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Andy. Glad you could be be here here. with us today. And also, uh, from Kent in the UK, is Paul Begg. Hello, Paul. Hi. It's good to be with such illustrious company. Oh, yeah. thank you very much. Paul, in case you don't know, is a ripperologist and author of numerous books, including Jack the Ripper, The Facts, Jack the Ripper, The Definitive History, Jack the Ripper, A to Z, uh, with Martin Fito and Keith Skinner, and a new edition of which will hopefully be released in the near future. And our special guest today is the editor of the online research website, Casebook Jack the Ripper as well as the administrator of their message boards and editor of the 2006 book Public Reactions to Jack the Ripper, Letters to the Editor, August to December 1888, published by Inklings Press. He's coming to us from Charlottesville, Virginia, Stephen P. Ryder. Hello, Stephen. Hello. And uh, we're very happy to have you as a guest on today's show. Thank you. Good to be here. Um... I'll start things off, Stephen, by asking you um, what first uh, piqued your interest in the, the Jack the Ripper case. Um, when, did, when did it all begin for you? Uh, I suppose if we're going back to the, the beginning, um, I first got interested probably in high school. Uh, I seem to remember doing a, a paper on it, not necessarily a Jack the Ripper uh, on its own, but uh, serial killers in general. And uh, I, I guess my, my oldest memory is, like a lot of other people, is the Mary Kelly photograph, uh, probably from Donald Rumbelow's book. Um, I didn't really do much with it after that. I spent a few years and went to college. And uh, at about the same time that I discovered the Internet, I discovered the diary of Jack the Ripper, which at the time sounded fascinating and interesting. And so I picked up a copy of that and read that and uh, had some discussions with some friends of mine um, on the subject and uh, just sort of started putting my thoughts down on paper about the diary and about the case in general and uh, from there um, as I said this is about the same time that I was first fiddling around with this this new thing called the internet in about 1995 and uh, got in touch with a a fellow who had a, a small ripper uh, online Jack the Ripper game. Uh, his name was Mark Dooling. And I uh, just told him I had some articles that I thought I might like to post on a website, and I had no idea how to do that, so uh, I sent them to him, and he was kind enough to post it on his site. And uh, I guess from there, it was it, it was sort of startling, the, the response that uh, came in from those articles, because you know back then there was so little available on, on the web. And actually, one of the first people to, to write to me, and you know, at the time I was tickled pink, I couldn't believe it, was uh, the man who's with us today is Paul Begg. And uh, he, he wrote me an email 
probably within the first few weeks of uh, getting those initial articles online, the, the sort of nugget that would eventually become the casebook. And of course, you know, I knew who he was. I'd read the books, uh, read his books at the time, and uh, you know, I I couldn't be more amazed. I was like, wow, there's this published author writing and uh, you know, commenting on on these articles that I just threw together. And so, you know, this along with all the other feedback I was getting just got me very excited. I guess I just I kept reading more and writing more, and eventually those few articles became uh, a site on its own. And uh, that's that's really how the casebook got started. That was. Uh, late 1995, early 1996, and, uh, you know, eventually we got our own site, got our own domain name and everything, and the rest is history, and that was, gosh, a little bit over 12 years ago. Was your background in uh, literature or, or in, in English, or in writing, or um, what, what, what was that, your educational background that, that caused you to uh, want to write a lot about the Jack the Ripper case? Well, at the time, I, I was an English major. Uh, that lasted, I think, about a year and a half. I actually couldn't get through Shakespeare. That was I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't deal with it. So I uh, I switched from uh, English to anthropology. But yeah, I I guess I did have something of a writing background. So you know, as a freshman in college, it wasn't much. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was at the at the time I did have that an English major. And um, and how how did the casebook.org website um, get started? Um, I mean, there are a lot of us that weren't around um, to visit the site twelve years ago, or uh, and um, so what was it? To kind of explain uh, the process that went on and the initial reaction to the site, and and talk about the early history of the website. Uh, well, the the early history is sort of the the very beginning is what I already talked about, and then after that, um, it was really a matter of uh, writing about the victims, writing about the suspects, uh, writing uh, tra transcribing press reports, which has always been sort of my my main fascination uh, when it comes to Jack, to Jack the Ripper. And uh, in the early days, you know, it, there wasn't much. There was a, there there was a main homepage, and then there was just maybe six or ten links that went off to, you know, a total of maybe 30 or 40 or 50 pages. Um, but what happened was, after the first few weeks and, and months, as I said, people were writing in, and they were not only saying, you know, thanks for putting this up, or, or a nice article, or, or giving me feedback and complaints about things I'd missed, but there were also people who were just aching to contribute to the site. And that's what really... Uh, got it off the ground and made it into, you know, something much bigger than what I just alone could have, could have uh, put together. And so, you know, we had people offering to write, uh, you know, victim biographies and, and folks who had manuscripts at home that, you know, they always thought, you know, I, I might get this published one day, but they never really got to that point or, or decided they just wanted to give it to someone to, to do something with it. Uh, and uh, so a lot of people did that, and, and, and the site really, after the first two months or so, uh, just really sort of exploded after then, and then of course we put up the message boards and the forums and the chat room and, and all that, and, and sort of the the community started to to snowball together and and really become a, a sizable website. And that it is, in, and today it's the the place to go um, for information on Jack the Ripper. Um, you have um, everyone from you know the 
veterans who have been researching the case since the 1960s and before visiting your site, all, all the way down to what seemed like um, high school students um, uh, posting on your message boards, um, seeking more information. And it's really become a, a research and educational tool for the case. And um, we all applaud you for, for that. Thank you. Um, uh, Howard Brown in Philadelphia, you want to take over from I sure do. sure do. I have a question for Steve. How are you doing, Steve? Pretty good, and you? All right, buddy. Um, let me ask you this. Of all the various mediums that Ripperology is involved in, which of them would you care to guess will become more prominent in the 21st century? For example, podcasts, magazines, websites, books, documentaries. Would you care to elaborate? Um, sure. I think, obviously, the web is uh, is the most dynamic and is, is the most promising sort of new medium to, to come up, obviously. But uh, I guess I'm, I'm still a traditionalist. I think books uh, have been king and will be king for a long time to come. I think uh, the web is, is great for certain things. It's great for bringing people together, and it's great for compiling information. But uh, when you want to really sit down and, and read a narrative, read two, three, four hundred pages of very well-written, very well-researched material, uh, generally, and maybe this is just me, but I, I don't want to do it on a computer screen. Uh, I want to sit down and be comfortable and read it in a book. And uh, so I think... You know, there, there, are, there are those who think that the, the, the paper publishing industry is, is on the way out. Uh, I don't know if that's the case. I think it's, there's certainly a shift, and, and some material that previously would have been published in, in paper format is probably going to be more and more uh, uh, compiled online, and, and vice versa. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of stuff that really would never have seen the light of day 15 or 20 years ago, uh, thanks to uh, self-publishing, uh, which is largely an online process these days, uh, is is now actually being made and, and being uh, made available in, in hard copy. So I mean, I, I don't really have a, a a simple answer. I think uh, certainly anything online based is going to grow, and there's there's going to be uh, probably more independently made videos, more independently made podcasts like this uh, going down down the pipe. But uh, for me, I think it, it's it's never going to replace uh, books and magazines and. And you get that, that sort of tactile experience. It's 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 going to be it's going to complement it, but I don't think it's going to overtake it. Yeah. Well, what would you say to the creation of a Ripper documentary with individuals other than the usual suspects, such as uh, Stuart Evans and uh, <clears throat> Paul Bag? One that one one or two that would be would that would have modern hardcore Ripperologists who were weaned on the works of the aforementioned. Yeah, I really, I, I can't stand seeing Paul Bag in another documentary. Just, uh, one more and I'm going nuts. <laughs> no, she. Uh, I wish I can come on that. <laughs> no, what I meant to say was uh, a documentary that featured the work of Neil Sheldon, for example, or Chris Scott. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, that that focused on the specialist genre of ripperology. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a fine idea, and I, I think uh, in a way it's it's starting to happen. Like it, a lot of people I know, Neil Sheldon was in uh, one of the major documentaries in two thousand and seven, uh, and I, I think you know there, there's there's always going to be sort of a, a turnover, or there's going to be the the uh, you know one generation of, of ripperologists and experts, and then the next, and uh, it's uh, eventually you know everyone will will get their day. I think if, if you work hard enough and you know your stuff and you've, you've made some discoveries and you have something to share, uh, it doesn't really matter 
what your name is or, or how well you're known as long as you have something to contribute. Uh, certainly, it's, it's worthwhile. Right. Well, thanks a lot, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, it's uh, Robert. Um, back, uh, back in the 1990s, uh, some old texts and some obscure texts were either too expensive or too difficult to find. And you started something called the Ripperological Preservation Society, where you found a lot of old texts and reprinted them and made them available to the Ripper community. Can you talk a little bit about how that started and how you got into researching uh, such obscure and old titles? Uh, sure. Um, well, like I said, my my primary interest uh, from the early days and through uh, today is is the, the contemporary press reports, uh, which is, has, has always been sort of a, a fascination for me. Uh, the idea that, that there's literally just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them out there, and you know we know pretty well the the content of. Uh, the articles of, of a few dozen papers, but there's just so much out there to, to still be found. And, you know, that also goes along with uh, the contemporary or, or near-contemporary literature. Um, my, my opinion on the case has always been, you know, we're, we're looking back, we're trying to solve a mystery, and, and we've got maybe 5%, if even that, of the, of the material and the knowledge that... Uh, that, that the people had back then that, that were originally investigating the case. And so it, it, it seems to me that the farther back you go, uh, the more likely it is that you'll find, you know, actually verifiable information, something, something useful. And so back when I was in college, uh, online um, uh, library directories were, were sort of a, a new and crazy thing. And, uh, of course... Um, with my interest in Jack the Ripper, I would, I would always be searching for Jack the Ripper and Whitechapel and all the various keywords. And I came across a book that I never saw in uh, any of the previous bibliographies by a guy named uh, Samuel Hudson, uh, titled Leather Apron, or The Horrors of Whitechapel, 1888. And uh, it looked like it was a, a proper uh, proper book, not just a, you know a, an article or something ephemeral. And... Uh, so I went out and, and I looked for a copy, and I'd, eventually I think we found it uh, on microfilm somewhere in Indiana or Illinois. And uh, sure enough, it was it was a, a full-length book, about eighty, just over eighty pages, if I remember. Uh, uh, and as best as we can tell, it was actually published uh, around December of 1888, which made it you know one of the fir very first um, nonfiction titles. Uh, ever published on the, on the subject, and it was actually published in, in, in the United States, I think in, in Philadelphia. It was in Philadelphia, um, yeah. Yeah, so um, that, you know, that was my first, I guess, big find that, as far as I know, uh, no one else had, had uh, found it uh, previous to that. And uh, so I thought, you know, why not make that available to, to folks to read? And uh, that's where we started the Liberological Preservation Society, which is an awful name, and I, I cringe just having to pronounce that. But uh, so that was the first one, and uh, from there, you know, I, I kept searching and kept finding stuff. Mostly uh, some uh, 19th-century dime novels that uh, very few people had ever seen before, and so I put those out as well. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I did that for a few years, probably about three, four years, and uh, you know, eventually, I, I I didn't really find anything else that was that was brand new. And by then, so many other people were looking, and so many other people were making reprints. That uh, I, I didn't really feel like I was I was doing something that was necessarily uh, 
benefiting anyone any longer. So uh, at, at that point, I, I made most of the stuff that I had found and, and published available online. And, uh, and and really, I haven't pursued it since then. But a, a lot of other people have been doing reprints uh, in the UK and in the US and bringing out some really incredible stuff. I mean, there's uh, new, new things being found all the time. So, um, Along the same lines, um, uh, why don't you uh, talk a little bit about the uh, Casebook Press project and how that came about. And... and, um, and uh, it eventually led to your book, Public Reactions to Jack the Ripper. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but um, tell us a little bit of the, the history of how that, that got going. Sure. Uh, well, like I said, that's that's always been my primary interest. Um, everything else just sort of revolves around that. In, in my view, that's that's the main crux of, of what I'm interested in and what I feel is one of the main things that the casebook can provide is, is that library of uh, contemporary press reports. Um, you know, I got interested in it uh, the way most people do. They go to their local library, and uh, if it's a, a fairly good-sized library, uh, like most in America, they're going to have the New York Times on microfilm and the, the London Times on microfilm. And it goes all the way back uh, to the 19th century. And so, of course, you know, I went through those and printed them out and transcribed them and uh, put them on the, the casebook back in the early days. And, uh, you know, folks were, especially for the London Times, which was, uh, you know, a a paper that, although it's widely available, a lot of folks had only seen snippets of it when it was quoted in uh, in Ripper books that had been published. And so, you know, a lot of folks were were saying it was was very useful to see it in in complete context and to be able to search it by keyword and just have have it all available there without necessarily having to travel to the library or or going to the UK to, to get these press reports in person. And, of course, that was... That was great for me. I thought, you know, this is this is a great idea for a project. This is something extremely useful that, that we could do. And so I pursued it myself uh, for a few years. Uh, fortunately, I was at uh, university at the time, and uh, our our collections there had uh, a couple of the of the UK dailies um, were available. So I, I I did a lot of transcribing there uh, in my sophomore and, and junior years, and uh, eventually. Um, uh, luckily, got into contact with uh, Adrian Vipers, who a lot of you know uh, or knew. Uh, his screen name was Viper, but uh, he's a he, he was a UK-based researcher um, and a, a really really nice guy who also shared uh, this passion for for the contemporary newspapers and, and other things. He, he wrote many articles about the about the case in general, but uh, he he had a passion for the newspapers that. Uh, surpassed my own even and he uh, he would go to the UK archives and and you know he had, he'd had access to almost any newspaper uh, at the time and he would print them out and he would transcribe them uh, extremely very very carefully and he would go over them three or four times to make sure there wasn't a single typo anywhere which uh, I'm ashamed to admit I never did and uh, so he, he would send those over and you know the, the project started to grow and uh, he, his enthusiasm, he would, he would talk about the project with other people. He actually got other volunteers to sign up and, and help him out. So uh, after a while, he would go out and collect the, the transcriptions uh, and make the photocopies, I mean, and he would uh, send 
the photocopies off to, to the four corners of the globe to all these various uh, uh, volunteers and who th then in their spare time they would transcribe all these all these press reports and then email them back to him and he would uh, check them for typos and anything and then once everything was good he'd send it off to me uh, to be to be put on the site and so we did this for years and years and until you know eventually as uh, most of you know uh, Adrian de did pass away uh, several years ago and uh, so um, that aspect of, of, of the project uh, sort of went away but um, in, in part for my own interest and in part to sort of honor what what he really uh, got going uh, we do keep it going today uh, every two years or so I, I buy a new couple of rolls of microfilm uh, from overseas and we uh, we, we go through I, I have a, a machine here and I I make the copies of, of all the press reports and I send it off to folks who are interested in volunteering to transcribe and uh, so we continue it even to this day and I think uh, I don't have it in front of me but we have something on the order of uh, 5,500 to around 6,000 individual press reports uh, transcribed indexed by subject and available um, on the casebook today. Isn't it interesting that, uh, sorry, I was just going to say okay. that it's not a question, more of a comment. And isn't it interesting that at this, the time where the internet is being blamed for the death of the daily newspaper and the Sunday newspaper, um, you have a case like the Jack the Ripper murders, uh, and its existence on the internet um, is hated so much just by the preservation of. Uh, of these same um, uh, newspapers that uh, are now, uh, you know, the people are wanting to expound the death knoll for just because of the internet. It's mm -hmm. it, it is irony. Uh, Andy, you, you were going to say something? Well, I was just going to say, Stephen, that's a, a very, very important database that we have and that we're building there. I really believe that uh, uh, with digital archives becoming available of more and more newspapers, that that's going to be the source of a lot of quote new information in the years to come and I realize you know that you can't newspapers are not 100 percent reliable but still you can you can find things out that uh, that we never knew before like for example the uh, the MP uh, Farquharson you know that that bit of information came about just from looking through digital databases yep. so the more we can have of that the better yeah well you know hopefully uh, it, it seems to be the case uh, hopefully more and more Newspapers will uh, will go digital uh, for their archives and uh, be available through keyword search, which was amazing. I mean, it, this is the sort of thing. It's a uh, it's a huge time saver in, in terms of you know going through the microfilm, you know, screen by screen, and just scanning it. Uh, it it's the, the possibilities are really endless. Yeah, Stephen, you said something earlier too that I wanted to to pick up on. You know, you made a, a comment that we know maybe five percent of what the uh, the principals knew at the time. I think that's important for us to remember: is that you know, we we like to think of ourselves as being very sophisticated and having all this knowledge, but really, in terms of raw facts, we don't know. We know a small fraction of what was known at the time, and it's a it's a big hunt to try to find out what they knew as much as we can. Uh, yeah, it's that's true. I mean, a any kind of history, really, not not just Jack the Ripper, but uh, any any sort of history where you're going back 100 or 150 years. Uh, you know, it's it's easy to say, well, we've got all this information, we've got thousands and thousands of press reports and books, and look at all the all the facts we have. But when you really look at it and you really pare it all down uh, in, in any historical approach, 
what we know versus what we think we know is uh, you know, there, there's a wide gap between the two. Uh, if I can just follow up on that point a bit, uh, Stephen, because um, you, you played a large role here in dragging the Ripper case into the 21st century by using the internet, uh, you know, as a, as a way that uh, you know we look differently now at historical crimes and indeed history itself. Um, you know, because it's no longer a subject for textbooks, you know, but a dynamic, you know, new way of looking at history for a new generation. What do you think about that? Like, uh, the Internet's role, uh, you know, from a historical perspective. Uh, I, I hope it, it, uh, it brings more people into it. Uh, I think, uh, before the Internet, I think, uh, it, it was very much sort of a, a closed atmosphere. It was, uh, if... If you weren't in the UK, uh, it was damn near impossible to write a Jack the Ripper book, uh, and, and you know, a, an actual factual Jack the Ripper book with, with with source material, unless you were traveling back and forth several times a year. Um, and, and so, f- the internet makes a lot of that information—not not all of it, unfortunately—but a lot of that ma- it makes it available no matter where you are uh, in the world. And so, for Jack the Ripper and for any any number of other subjects, I think it's it's. It, it's opened the door for people who had an interest in the case and, and might not have been financially able or for whatever other reason uh, able to, to travel for research. I think it's it's really opened the door for, for folks like that to really uh, get published and, and get their ideas out there. And Mike Hovell and Hull, uh, why don't you chime in here? Hi, Stephen. Um, how can listeners to the uh, podcast help out with the uh, casebook press project uh, well we're always looking for volunteers uh, first off and uh, you know volunteers can uh, help out by transcribing articles that have already been photocopied but uh, uh, anyone who, who has access to an archive uh, it's equally important that uh, we, we go out there and get new photocopies and, and new uh, images of, uh, of articles and of course, online archives are, are also uh, extremely useful. So, anyone who has an interest could certainly just contact me, drop me an email, and uh, I'll sort of give you an update on, on what we're doing on the press reports. And if you have a an idea or, or an area that you'd like to focus on, um, certainly we could talk it over and see if there's a, a place on the casebook for it. And Paul Bag in Kent, in the UK, uh, we have you on today. So why don't you chime in here? Yeah, I, I just uh, think that uh, of the casebook overall, uh, the, the most important aspect is, from my point of view, are, are the press reports. And I think there's an, uh, an incredible amount of new information, not necessarily big stuff, uh, but small small pieces of information here and there, which... Uh, has just been been amazing, and I'd also like to point out that it just doesn't do the press reports, but there are uh, transcripts of various uh, book sources as well, like Anderson and McNaughton and uh, and the usual ones, and uh, and also uh, documents as well. So all of that information is being made available on the casebook uh, to to anybody who wants to, to to look for it, and 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 it's all that that much is incredible and that that's uh, something that I think uh, particularly anybody new to to the subject um, who wasn't around say 20 
25 years ago, uh, the amount of information that has been made available by people like Stephen and, and in the various uh, journals and so forth is, is tremendous. It's, it's utterly fantastic. I agree, and, and uh, gems can be discovered or rediscovered uh, in the press projects every day. And just to give an example, a couple of ga- d- a couple of days ago, the researcher A.P. Wolf came out with this something that he found on the Casebook Press project concerning a man who sold uh, wigs and disguises. And in and in this um, article that he pulled up, the this gentleman who ran this wig shop and who admits to selling disguises. Um, claimed that one of the gentlemen he sold disguises to was followed by Scotland Yard to New York City. Mm. And um, that's something I certainly had never heard of before. Um, but again, it was something that w- that someone had um, had transcribed for the press project that you know um, was was up on the Casebook website, and it just it took it took to searching to re- rediscover and, and you know. Uh, bring bring uh, back up this uh, uh, just another aspect of the case that that could be unknown to to, to even um, you know someone who's been around the case for a long time, not not just a newbie to the case. So right. It, it is a uh, and you can do that, but you can also make comparisons between various news reports, uh, and you get various uh, very okay. It says minor details of no great interest to anybody else, but you 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 can pull out those kind of little tiny points uh, where you can see conflicts between stories you can start to pull out well that was a press uh, agency story and so that's that's one that went to a whole load of newspapers but here's another one where quite obviously a journalist uh, was there and and on the street and and, and went and in, interviewed somebody uh, personally and so you get a variation on the story there so people have been telling Witnesses tell the same story to three or four different journalists, and there are little tiny variations, additions, omissions, and so forth uh, between these stories. And that kind of comparison stuff is is extremely valuable as well. Right, right. I have an open question for anybody. Um, AP Wolf uh, is going to be running a forum on JTR forums, and he might even do it on Casebook uh, when the old Bailey transcripts become available. What does any? What does everyone think about that, and, and the possibility that we may find, you know, conceivably ten to twenty new suspects within those transcripts? Stephen, be fascinating. Be great. Well, I was going to let someone else talk. <laughs> uh, Paul, then, then Paul, let's hear your opinion on the the, the old Bailey transcripts being uh, made available it's, online. It's, it's, it's one of those awful things where you begin to feel that you're extremely old. I don't know. I, I have no idea what's going to be in those old Bailey transcripts. And uh, when, when we've got them and we can look at them, that, that'll be, be fantastic. Maybe there'll be something there. Maybe there won't be. But um, who, who can say? I, I, would, I would feel that in all probability that anybody who's cropping up in the old Bailey, we would know about anyway from... Uh, from the the newspaper database that exists, but uh, we get further details. Maybe people will assume an importance that they didn't have before. Who knows? I mean, you, yeah. you, you just really don't know. Do you? you can't forecast these things at all. It's a very exciting idea. I just hope that uh, that AP gets it and uh, let's see it soon. <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, Robert, go ahead. Yeah, I'm changing tax here. Uh, a few years ago, Stephen, you acquired uh, 
a group of objects from the, the Mitre Public House in Whitechapel Road. And uh, among these objects was a, a plate of hair allegedly belonging to Catherine Eddowes. And uh, you sent it to a man named Ian Finley, an Australian pathologist who developed a new DNA technique. Now, can you tell us about all of that uh, for those people who are unfamiliar with it? Sure. Um, I, I guess by now it would have been about three or four years ago um, that I, I was contacted by a, a, a fellow who said he had some ripper items that he, he would uh, he, he had no idea if they were real or not, if they were a joke, uh, but uh, he, he would like to send photographs or possibly send them over and uh, have you know, quote-unquote expert look at them and and give, uh, give an opinion on it. Uh, and uh, among these were, uh, I think, two copies of uh, the Illustrated Police News, which, uh, to me, uh, it, they didn't look original. They looked like the 1970s reprints. Uh, there was a 19th century telegram uh, that uh, was handwritten, and uh, I don't remember the exact words, but it was something to the effect of Catherine Eddowes' body discovered, uh, send police, post haste, Etc. And and uh, along with that, there was uh, there was also a, a bizarre BBC contract about some kind of a 1920s radio show about George Chapman. And finally, there was a, a, a lock of hair uh, that was said to have been taken from the body of, of Catherine Eddowes. Um, you know, he sent he sent me photographs of them, and uh, I wasn't really bowled over, especially the fact that the the newspapers uh, were 1970s. Uh, and the the telegram w- was sort of the the obvious one because it was it was fairly obvious to me at least that the original text that was on the telegram, which I think the original the actual paper was nineteenth century, uh, but the original text was sort of scratched or erased out, and uh, this new text was written on top of it, and so you know it looked it looked like a forgery or, or something someone was just doing for fun, and you know if, if this w- really was being displayed uh, at the Mitre Pub. Uh, then that's certainly not outside the, the realm of possibility that someone just did it for fun to put something on the wall of, of interest to get uh, tourists in. And, uh, you know, the long and short of it is that's 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 generally my call and everyone else's call who's, who's ever seen it. Uh, I sent the BBC contract to Andy Aliff, who uh, used to work at the BBC, and uh, he, he did some research for it and said, no, this, the BBC contract is actually a fake, and... There, there's no no sign of any uh, any uh, any show that was being referred to in it, and of course you know the lock of hair is is what most people are interested in, and uh, for me personally I I I didn't think that it was uh, the real deal, but uh, obviously you know the the guy sent it to me and I I figured I'd see what I could do in in terms of getting it tested, and just by absolute luck, uh, timing wise I, I was reading an article. Uh, just probably weeks after I received the the package from this fellow, and uh, it was it was about uh, this this guy Ian Finlay over in Australia, and he had gotten DNA out of uh, out of a 150 or 140 year old lock of hair, which was uh, the first time anyone had been able to do anything anything of the sort with uh, material of of that age. And so I, you know, of course, you know, I had this 120 supposedly year old lock of hair. Uh, in, in, in my closet, and I said, "Well, what the heck? I'll I'll see if I can find this guy." And I wrote to him, and he wrote back and said he he was definitely interested in testing it uh, free of charge. And so uh, I packaged it off and sent it off to him. 
and uh, the results, uh, he, he found no DNA on it, uh, possibly because the hair was cut and not plucked. Uh, usually the DNA that you find in hair is actually plucked whole, so it, it still has the follicle in it, and that's, that's usually where you find the DNA. Uh, so that, that might have been part of it, or it might have just, uh, it might have just been too old or, or, or whatnot, but uh, he, he couldn't even confirm that the hair was human. So uh, we don't know that it was Catherine Eddowes. We don't even know that it was a, a, a person's hair. It could have been a horse's mane or who knows what. Um, so that was sort of the, the long and the short of it. I, I never really held up much hope for it. But uh, it, it, it got a little bit of press coverage at the time that, you know, Catherine Eddowes' lock of hair is, is being tested for, for DNA, but it, it never really went anywhere. And, and my, my opinion is it's, it's still a hoax. Sure. And there's a, fo- a follow-up to that. Um if DNA had been ins- uh, extracted, I mean, we do have uh, living relatives of Catherine Eddowes as found by Neil Sheldon. Um, right, and that's actually what we did. Um, I, I neglected right. to mention that part. Uh, I, I did get in touch with Neil uh, because at this time he had just very recently gotten in touch uh, with uh, the descendants of the Eddowes family. And uh, I think one or two members of, of, the, of the family uh, did agree to provide uh, swabs of DNA. And those were sent off to, to Ian Finley in, in Australia as well, separately. Uh, but unfortunately, since since no DNA was found, uh, it, it was it, it was worthless in, in that respect. There was, there was nothing to compare it to. Right, like nothing came of this. But um, in your opinion, can modern forensics help? Uh, you know, not necessarily solve this case, but deal with certain aspects of the case. Do you think ever at some point in the future, do you think that's a viable possibility? Um. Yeah, I, I, I certainly wouldn't rule anything out, but uh, it would be it would be very difficult for me to think of anything that we have today, apart from the Ripper letters, uh, obviously, which uh, could could contain some form of DNA. You know, the 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 bloody fragment of, of apron that allegedly is is from Catherine Eddowes. Uh, I suppose that could be tested, uh, and. Uh, you know, if we ever found uh, any other remnants of the case, certainly those could be tested as well. But the materials that we have at our disposal today, really, there, there's, there's just not a whole lot uh, connected to, to, the, to the victims themselves. Stephen? I, I wanted to ask you a question about the, the Crawford letter. You did some research. You wrote an article about that. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us something about how you found it and, and what it is and particularly your conjecture about which Emily Druitt might have been the subject of that letter? Sure. Um, this was, gosh, five, maybe six years ago. Uh, 2001, I think it was. Was it 2001? Okay, so seven years ago. Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, periodically what I, I, I go through all the various online databases because more and more libraries are getting their materials uh not necessarily digitized, but at least at least cataloged online. And uh, I'm always looking for material that that's new or that no one's ever heard of before. And uh, I guess around 2001, I found uh, a pretty sizable collection of uh, papers and memorabilia from the Anderson family that was uh, located in all of all places, Duke University, uh, here on the eastern coast of uh, the United States, and. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm I'm in Virginia, so it's only about four-hour drive for me. And uh, I I called up uh, Judy Stock, who is a, a friend of mine, also in Virginia, and asked her if she's interested in taking a little field trip down there. 
to take a look at all these papers, and she was, and so we uh, we set up a, a trip. Uh, it was probably the summer of 2001, because I know it was it was hot as hell when we got there. And uh, so, you know, we, we went in, and this was uh, back in the day, so I, I brought my big, clunky 2001-era laptop and my big, clunky 2001-era scanner with me, and I, you know, I was loaded down with all this equipment, and uh, we, we made it in, got into, got into the rare books room, and uh, I think we spent uh, all of the first day and about a half of the second day uh, going through uh, the papers, and it, it, it was an amazing collection. It was uh, it was actually purchased by Duke University in the 1980s, I think, uh, from an institution or, or a bookseller in Ireland, uh, and you know they bought it mostly for uh, the the religious aspect of you know Anderson was a something of a religious scholar, and that's that's mainly why they purchased it. And uh, a lot of it was uh, family letters. Uh, there, there were letters uh, going as far back as the 18th century uh, from Anderson's father, I think, if I remember correctly, and uh, going all, all the way up into the early 20th century. And uh, so there was a lot of interesting information there. There, there wasn't a whole lot uh, actually on Anderson's uh, time, Anderson's police work, unfortunately. Uh, it was mostly uh, his missionary work uh, earlier on, I think, in the 1870s and 1860s. And uh, there was uh, a lot of material later on, especially I think one of his sons died uh, either in World War One or, or just previous to World War One in, in a shipwreck. And there, there was a lot of material then. But uh, in the period that we were interested in, you know, obviously 1888, 1889, and, and the surrounding years, there wasn't a whole lot. There were a few letters and uh, a few. There was there was an invitation to a party in, in October of 1888, and then there was this thing, the, the Crawford letter, uh, which I, you know, I'm going off memory here. I, I, if I recall, there was no specific date on it, but it was stored in it in a folder uh, that was uh, that was containing you know 1888 and 1889 material, uh, and, and uh, a, a few years past that, obviously, into the 1890s as well. But uh, the, the letter was interesting. It was just a single sheet of paper, I believe, on two sides. And uh, there was it was signed uh, uh, Crawford. Or, and uh, the, the basic gist of, of, the, of the letter was that uh, it was a letter of introduction. He was introducing this woman uh, to Anderson. And he said, uh, you know, I, I can't verify if this woman's story is true, but she has or she thinks she has some, some kind of knowledge about the Whitechapel murder and believes she may be nearly related to him. Uh, please, you know, listen to her story and make up your own opinion was, was the basic gist of the letter. And, of course, you know, that's interesting because, you know, first of all, it's a Jack the Ripper-related letter here in America that, as, as far as I had known at the time, and I think that's still the case, it, it, it had never been known about before. And, obviously, it, it had... Uh, it, it, it sort of had the Druid ring to it of the whole story of private information, uh, believing that uh, a family member uh, might have might have committed the murders, and so you know we we went through the rest of the collection and we didn't really find anything else that was Jack the Ripper related at all. Uh, we did find some uh, new photographs of Anderson and his family, which were interesting, and I believe those were published as well with the with the original article. Um, <clears throat> But it was it was the Crawford letter that was the the main discovery, and I, I started doing research on on Crawford, who was uh, the 
26th or 27th Earl of Crawford. Uh, I forgot the, the exact number. Uh, but his, uh, his name was, um, gosh, I, I, I forgot it's... I've got your article name. in front of me. Uh, James Ludwig okay. Lindsay. Right, Lindsay. Yeah. And so I started doing research on him and uh, found uh, really that he, there's not, not really a biography of him, but uh, there, there was a book about uh, the Lindsay collection. And it turns out he was an avid bibliographer and a collector of books. And uh, there, there was a lot of biography about him in this, in this particular book, though it was mainly just a catalog of, of the various works he had collected. And one of the names that came up again and again and again was uh, Bernard Quaritch, who many of you will know is a famed book dealer uh, of, the, of the 19th century. And he was uh, one of his uh, primary customers at the time was Lindsay, uh, who, who brought just absolute reams and reams of, of, of books from him. Uh, and so, you know, I thought that was interesting. And, you know, I read through the book, but I didn't really get anything that I thought at the time was, was useful until later on I was searching uh, book catalogs once again. And I, I just, I thought I'd, I'd see if any hits came up for Druid. And uh, around this time of, you know, late 19th century. And of course, I, I came up with uh, a, a couple of books uh, that were actually high, very, very high quality artistic reprints of the works of uh, William Blake. And uh, they were published and uh, sort of um, more, more than just published. Quaritch himself was actually uh, involved in, in the production of, of, these, uh, of these reprints. And one of the names uh, that, w that was involved, one of the, one of the artists who uh, worked on, the, on this series of books was uh, Emily Druitt. And so... You know, as a lot of folks in this in this uh, Ripper community will do, they'll put one and one together and make twelve. And so I said, "Wow, we got Truett, we've got Lindsay, we've got this guy Quaritch between them." Well, maybe it was Quaritch who uh, who got Emily Druid in touch with Lindsay, and uh, maybe it was Emily who thought, "Well, maybe uh, someone related to me, I.e. Montague Druid, uh, could have been the Ripper." So it was a stretch, but uh, I thought it was interesting enough to, to write an article about it, and so I did, and uh, published everything that I, I had found up to that point, um, leaving it open at the end as to whether or not this is actually a, a, a verifiable connection. Um, but some months afterwards, I actually found uh, additional material on uh, on Emily Druitt, and there were actually two Emily Druitts, uh, one who was related to Montague, uh, and was his cousin, and another who was uh, related to Yabez, J-A-B-E-Z, I'm not sure how to pronounce that name. Uh, Yabez. Yabez. I've always said Yabez, I don't know. And, uh, and, and that, that uh, Druid, that side of the family, is actually completely separate from Montague, as far as I could tell at the time. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's interesting to me. I think it's, it's still possible uh, that there's a Druid connection with that letter, um, but certainly, um, I, if, if you consider uh, the, the absolute hysteria that was going on at the time and how many people were saying, well, you know, I think I know who Jack the Ripper was, it's not outside the bounds of reason that more than just one person thought one of their relatives was Jack the Ripper. So, hey, if, if I could just follow up, how did, you, how did you find out that it was the Emily who was the daughter of, of Jabez? Uh, how did you verify that? That was in an article... 
uh, that was published uh, fairly recently, actually, in, um, in, our, in a, an art journal of some sort. I forgot the name. But it, it actually it had uh, two or three sentences about uh, Emily Jurith and uh, included some of her family members' uh, uh, names in, in the article. And so I, I used those. I, I looked them up in a Druid um, genealogy book that I had uh, access to, uh, which is, is actually, it's, it's huge. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a genealogy book about the Mayo family, but it contains a lot of inf interesting information, including a photograph of Robert Druitt um, on the Druitt family. And I, I looked it up in there and found Yabez was... Uh, was very far removed from the the Montague side of the family. You know that you know that he lived in uh, Myland Road though, on the East End. Yeah, he, he did live uh, in the East End, not uh, not quite Whitechapel, but uh, in the area. And you know that there are a couple of letters written by Jabez and his wife to one of the daughters of Robert Druitt. Uh, these letters are in the West Sussex Record Office in Chichester. Don't know the contents, but they're dated 1888 and 1889. So oh, even really? though it may be a it may be a distant familial relationship, there was correspondence between Jabez Druitt and Robert Druitt's family in that period. We know that, right? And uh, you know the 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 exact words in the Crawford letter were uh, sort of vague, but they were that she thinks he is nearly related in quotes nearly yeah. related. And well, that one can, could take and, that two ways. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go right. ahead. Yeah, and that, that could be, you know, cousin or, or uh, I, I wouldn't say brother, but, you know, aunt, cousin, nephew. But you could also say nearly related means, you know, not quite related, but, but somewhat related. Right. Yeah. So yeah. There, there's wiggle room in there, and I'm sure uh, someone, if someone wants to, they can make that argument. Uh, for me, I, I just, I don't have enough information to say really who's being talked about in that letter, but I, I certainly think it's it's interesting and, and worth looking into. Yeah, but it was, I'm sorry, it was in a folder of material from... 1888, 1899, that era? I, I, I'm, I'm probably being more specific than it, w it actually was. I'm, I'm going from memory, but it was a folder from the late 1880s into the 1890s. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. Right. Stephen, right. mm -hmm. one question. Uh, uh, Andy brought up the Earl of Crawford, and, and you elaborated just now. Um, did you know, uh, well, I'm sure you did, that the Earl of Crawford was suspected to having been the author of the December 1st Pall Mall Gazette article, One Who Thinks He Knows, that we now know that Robert Stevenson wrote. Right. Um, and that he was, um, ostensibly, he was an occultist. Is this the one and the same Earl of, the Craw Earl of Crawford? Right. Uh, I did research that line of inquiry, and uh, if I recall, uh, the Earl of Crawford actually wasn't an occultist. Uh, that was sort of a, a canard. Uh, but he did collect uh, uh, occult books as part of his book collection. Uh, you know, he, he had a wide variety of, of interests, and that was one of them. So, uh, you know, to call him an occultist based on that, I'm not sure if we can, but uh, I think that's that's where the story came from. Okay. It's interesting to see that uh, Druid and Stevenson possible connection there, you know, perhaps not directly, but, you know, indirectly. Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul Begg in Kent, um, I, I'd like you to get, get some more words in here on this show. Yeah, I, I was just uh, interested, <coughs> really, in asking Stephen now what his current uh, interest in the Ripper does, does. The case book basically run itself now, or uh, you know, what active involvement do you have in uh, in pursuit of this subject? Uh, well, I would say my my involvement in the in the site and in, in Jack the Ripper as a whole sort of uh, comes and goes. You know, over twelve years, there have been periods where I've 
worked on it, you know, five hours a day or eight hours a day, nonstop. Mm. And there have been times when uh, I just I, I didn't make time for it, and I just sort of let the forum go on its own and let let things just sort of uh, continue. I mean, I would do occasional work on it, but it wouldn't be a daily uh, regimen. And uh, I would say probably in the past year or so, uh, that has been the case. Uh, I've not really had a whole lot of time just for personal issues and other projects that have come up. Um, but I have uh, gotten back into it over the past uh, month or two. Um, in terms of where the casebook is going and, and what my new, my new projects are, um, uh, one of the, the projects that I, I, I'm hoping to sort of get off the ground is uh, the casebook blogging format, which is something I set up earlier in the year. Unfortunately, it uh, suffered through the, the crash. Uh, one of my servers crashed in February, and we lost everything before it could be backed up uh, in terms of the, the blogging. Uh, but uh, we've gotten it back up, and we do have a few bloggers now, including uh, Mike Covell, who's who's on the uh, the call right now. And uh, I, I think that's going to be one of the the more interesting uh, areas of the site because, unlike the forums, where uh, it, it's in, in many ways it's something of a free for all, where everyone can share their opinion, but also everyone can sort of be as nasty as they want to be, and it, <laughs> that kind of turns some folks off. But I think a, a blog is going to be appealing to folks who want to want to participate in the community and they want to share their research but uh, they don't necessarily want to get involved in all the, the petty BS that, that sometimes takes place on the forums and so on a, on a blog for those who aren't familiar with the term uh, the individual owner of the blog is it's, it's essentially their, their own miniature website and they control all the content they can add new posts, images, videos whatever they want categorize it and, and, and everything and uh, folks can comment on each blog entry just as they can comment and, and add comments on a forum. But the difference is that the blog owner actually has complete control over the site. So uh, Mike, for example, if he, he makes a post on Donston and someone comes up and says, no, this is complete bollocks, it's not even worth reading, uh, he can say, all right, well, that's not going to be published. That's, that's not going to get us anywhere. And uh, he, can, he can control the, the comments that are uh, allowed through, and he can sort of really direct the conversation towards the specific subject that interests him instead of just having you know a forum where it's a free-for-all and generally the, the loudest people and the most um, obnoxious people sometimes are the ones who, who direct the conversation. So that, that's the hope at least. I mean the, the blogs are still very new and we've got about uh, six or seven people signed up and actually I would invite everyone who's on this call and uh, folks who are listening to the podcast. If you're interested in setting up a blog, please you know contact me. We're we're just getting it started, but uh, I, I'm definitely interested in having anyone who has uh, an interest in the Ripper case uh, getting signed up uh, with their own blog. So that's that's one of the main projects that I'm working on right now for the casebook. Apart from just you know the everyday business of keeping it updated, uh, putting up the the latest articles, the latest press reports, uh, book reviews, that sort of thing. Um, I have a question along those lines, Stephen. Um, how much do you think the um, the message boards? I mean, your blog idea is a really good idea because it allows the blogger to edit um, and and kind of control. It's like you said, it's like a well, Howard on his side has individual forums. It's got, it's kind of like the same same kind of thing where the blogger is able to edit um, their own um, blog in the comments that are contained in there. How much do you think that the message boards? Um, are a help or a hindrance to Jack the Ripper research? Um, because uh, if a hypothetical case arose to where with the old Bailey transcripts, if they, can't, if they came about and someone be, uh, started naming 
cases um, of uh, un, unknown um, local East Enders with a history of violence, uh, names that we have never heard before, um, and they may get scant attention on a message board and just may, you know, uh, fall into the ether. Um, oh, um, and, and, and it may hinder research, you know, just by the, the it's, it, it seems that um, a lot the messages that the message boards get the most attention are the ones that can that 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 contain uh, theories about currently named suspects. So I was wondering your opinion on on um, on do you think that message boards in and of themselves are are um, more of a help or a hindrance to um, researching the case? Um, I, I think they're. They're much more of a help than they are a hindrance. I think the only way that they're a hindrance really is if you allow it to be and if you sort of get sucked into it and get involved in, in sort of the petty squabbles that, that go along, uh, unfortunately, with most online conversations in that format. Um, I think, yeah, it, it, it's definitely the case that useful and interesting nuggets of information get posted and then get ignored, unfortunately, because it's the... It's the loud and sexy conversations about Maybrick and and Donston and all the all the suspects and and uh, and whatnot and all the various theories that are going on that they get the most attention because that's what most people are interested in. But I wouldn't say that that's a hindrance. I mean, if it's if it's posted out there and it's it's available, even if it's you know sort of hidden away, uh, it it is available out there. And if someone t- five ten years from now is interested in uh, Jack Spratt, who was arrested in 1889, and they do a keyword search, that post is going to come up. You know, that post might be six years old, and it might have had no comments, but it's going to be just as useful today as it would have been six years ago to that guy who, who was interested in that exact subject. So, and I agree uh, with you. Uh, I agree with you on that, Stephen, because uh, you know, as a researcher myself, and uh, Mike can probably concur with this, is that we use uh, repositories like the Casebook quite a bit. And it's fairly easy to cut through the BES and the personal opinion. And, and when you're just looking at a, a fact or an alleged fact, and you can actually go and take that little nugget of information and do further research on it. And I found it, you know, more useful. You know, definitely not a hindrance. Great. Well, that's that's good to know. <laughs> and it's just not my opinion. And Mike Covell, um, you had something to add here? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Stephen, um, have you ever actually been tempted to join in on the debate? Uh, on the forums, um, or do you just leave it up to the the members? Um, I I generally haven't. Um, over the past, the, you know, the site's almost been around uh, just over twelve years. Um, I there are there are times when I get involved in the forums and I'll I'll make a post every now and again. But no, I, I don't get involved in uh, most of the debates that go on. Um, first, because I I have very particular interests in the case, uh, and it, a lot of it doesn't really center for me around who Jack the Ripper was. Um, I'm interested much more in sort of the time and the place and, and the general society uh, that, that this was taking place in. But also, um, just from the standpoint of running the, the casebook, the most important thing for me is that someone can come to the casebook and know that you know the information that they're getting uh, from the press reports or from you know some of the articles and and, and suspect overviews is that um, it, it's not being written by a guy who has uh, a horse in the race, so to speak. You know, I I don't want to make 
my personal opinions um, sort of known for, for in the sense that I don't want people to, to come to the site and, and, and for example if they'll say well I don't I don't think Donston Stevenson was the ripper I think he's the worst suspect in the world and I don't want someone who thinks Donston uh, what possibly could have been the ripper to come to the site and say well you know this is useless because you know uh, the guy who runs the site uh, ha it has uh, preconceived notions about certain aspects of the case and uh, you know who knows how that has affected the content that's that's been in or content uh, maybe someone gave him an article that uh, that that didn't jibe with his personal theories and maybe he didn't post it for that reason so I, I try to keep my own ideas and my own theories about the case uh, th though I have very few of them <laughs> obviously uh, I, I try to keep them to myself you know if someone asks me about it sure I'll, I'll answer it but uh, yeah I, I don't actively get involved in those discussions will we ever see a blog then by yourself uh, actually, yeah, um, I, I, I'm thinking of, of doing one, but it, it won't be uh, really my thoughts on the case so much as it's. I'm hoping to use it as sort of a, a sounding board, just a, you know, this is new on the site, or this was posted uh, five days ago, and I think this is interesting, and here's why. Or, you know, if there's just anything that's Ripper-related in the news that, that strikes my interest, you know, it's not going to be comprehensive, because they're Ripperologists and Ripper Notes and a lot of other places uh, handle that much better than I could. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I probably will do a blog of my own, and uh, we'll we'll see how it goes. Uh, and Stephen, uh, like the casebook, uh, when anyone does a search on on Google or any other search engine uh, on the Ripper, you know your site is the first one that comes up, and and I think because of that, uh, you know, media and individuals, uh, you must get a lot of strange, unusual, unique requests from. Uh, the public at large. Could could you tell us about a few, maybe? Yeah, the 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 single email that I get most often, and I, I get it at least probably three or four times a day, is I have a Jack the Ripper paper. It's due tomorrow. Please, can you send me something? <laughs> and it's, yeah, it, it's it's always the same exact email, and you know I I I don't respond to them anymore. It's 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 kind of funny, but um yeah sure I mean you know. I, I get emails from people who uh, who have new theories and they want to share them and they want to get my opinion on them and uh, usually they, they walk away unhappy uh, when they when they do get my opinion but uh, yeah. I, I get I get uh, emails from people who genuinely have new and exciting information to share uh, which which is always which is always great uh, and you know I do get uh, inquiries from the media about uh, whenever Jack the Ripper's in the news they want to get a sound bite or they want to get uh, a few sentences in an article or someone on, on video to respond to some questions. Howard, um, do you have something to, to add to this uh, conversation here? Uh, sure. Okay. All right, Stephen, since we're talking about suspects here. In case you guys heard ringing noises in the background, it's because we've lost Paul Begg, and I'm, so I'm making an attempt to add him back in because I wanted him to comment on the the whole uh, uh, conversation that was going about about uh, the usefulness of message boards, since he's one of the few uh, published authors uh, who are prominent in the case to participate in the message boards. So, anyway, go ahead, Howard. Okay. All right. Um, relative to the uh, press press coverage and the newspaper reports that uh, you're you're pretty famous for, let me ask you a question, Stephen. Do you think that some of the reason that the press coverage seemed to dwindle after the Mary Kelly murder had a lot to do with the resignation of Charles Warren? In other words, did the press use the Whitechapel murders to help get rid of Warren or at least try prior to his resignation? 
Um, I think that, that could certainly be uh, part of it. Uh, obviously, a lot of newspapers at the time uh, covered the Jack the Ripper sort of through the lens of uh, either being a radical or a conservative paper. And uh, a lot of that was, are you pro-Warren or are you anti-Warren? Um, so, yeah, going through the papers, obviously you, you get that sort of bent depending on what, what paper you're reading. Um, but if I had to sort of put the blame on one thing, I would say it was, uh, gosh, you know, I, I'm awful at names and I'm sort of uh, making it obvious why I created the casebook because I, I need sort of a handy reference guide. Um, but it was uh, the famous uh, uh, case in uh, there was a the, the Times witness was uh, assassinated or gosh you know if Paul was on he he would know the Paul name is of the on. case. I'm Paul, here. are you there? I'm here. I literally just got back. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, Paul. What was the, the the famous case that was that sort of it, it started before November, but it was. Uh, it sort of exploded in, in the press in November of 1888 about the, the Times Witness, uh, or the Parnell Commission, that was it. Oh, the Parnell Commission, right, yes. Right, yes, and uh, the, yeah. the Parnell Commission is, isn't something that's really written a lot about in, in most Ripper books, but uh, if you go through the press reports uh, in, in around November of 1888, around the time of the Mary Kelly case, uh, there was actually more coverage of the Parnell Commission than there was about Jack the Ripper in general. Uh, even in the papers that were you know, making their bread and butter on the Jack the Ripper case, the Parnell Commission, uh, and the whole sort of buzz around that, surrounding that case, uh, was huge at the time. And so I'd, my, my opinion for, for, the, for a long time has been that uh, the, the, not necessarily the cessation, but the, it, the, the case was less sensationalized after Mary Kelly than it was, you know, after the double event or after Chapman. Uh, partially, I think, just because of lack of space. So many pages of newsprint were devoted to the Parnell Commission at that time that uh, I think the, the, the focus of the press, you know, like it does today, uh, when it gets a new big story, it just almost 100% shifts to that uh, regardless of what else is going on. And he was a major politician at the time, Parnell, so, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, it, literally like having a major politician in a, in a scandal case now would uh, virtually swamp anything else, so it did uh, back then with Parnell. And Paul, since we have you back on, I was going to ask you, um, uh, we were discussing about the time you dropped off, um, the usefulness of, of, of message boards as research tools. Um, would, would you recommend um, a researcher um, who, let's say, discovers an interesting letter or, um, you know, um, has... has, has uh, believes they have some kind of a, a breakthrough in the case, would you uh, encourage them to post this on, on a message board or uh, to, get, to get feedback from, um, from the Ripperology community or would you um, recommend that they uh, go uh, in some other route to, um, to, get, to get their opinions heard? Cause, I, go ahead. Sorry, go on. No, go ahead. Uh, I, I think that it's... Uh, massively important these days uh, that that there are these outlets there are the journals there are there are the the, the message boards and yes I, I think that's the way it should go um, I think one of the uh, original thoughts behind uh, Nick Warren when when he uh, launched Ripperana all those years ago 
was that these snippets of information, not not full-blooded, full-blown articles, but but these snippets of new discoveries, uh, had some sort of uh, place where they could be placed, and um, uh, to to a great extent, uh, places like the the casebook and, and things like that have have um, supplanted the the magazines in that respect. So yes, I think should, right. things should go on the message boards, and one of the reasons why I don't like. Uh, message boards when, when they become dominated by a particular point of view ha- as has happened uh, in the past in the case of uh, particularly the, and, and most notoriously the diary where it gets swamped by a individual or a group of individuals uh, it, it stops people coming forward because sometimes uh, people are made to look foolish and of course, nobody wants to, to to do that when when they're just trying to do some uh, share some thoughts or some information that uh, uh, you know that is is theirs. They, they don't want to be be uh, held up to mockery or anything like that. So uh, yes, I, I think that, um, that it's very important that people do share these pieces of information and solicit comment and uh, and observation. And for the most part, people are generally. Uh, very supportive, I think. Uh, it's very. It's, it's not that common, actually, that you, that you have uh, uh, people subjected to rudeness and being put down. Right. And uh, Mike Hubble in the hall, would you like to chime in here? You, yeah. you wanted to ask a question about the ripper from, from Hole Letter. Yeah, that's right. Uh, just to inform you, um, hopefully it will be in the next issue um, of Ripperology. Um, Ripperologist, sorry. Recently, while I was uh, going through all the old press reports in Hull, what I discovered at, at, for the period was that because Hull was quite a large um, port um, during the 1800s, we actually had our own reporters down in London um, so we've got quite a lot of stories that were unpublished anywhere else. One such story um, was actually a local story of the, the whole times um, where a young boy had gone into the offices and left uh, a ripper letter. Um, now, they published the ripper letter in the paper, and I've got a full transcript. Unfortunately, um, it appears that the original um, has been lost over the years. Um, the only place that might have it is the East Riding archives which is out in Beverly um, and they're still looking um, through their collections to see if, if they might have it um, but for me it, just, it shows the importance of the press at the time, I mean this, this ripple letter has never been seen before um, I will send it to you all so you can you can have a read through and, and have a look look at the text and it's quite interesting as well because it actually rhymes um, you know that the writer's gone to a great length to make it rhyme Um it's quite an interesting piece, actually, um, but it just goes to show that there are still some little snippets out there in the press um, that that shed new light um, and give us new information on the case. And didn't the the press report that this letter had a, a bloody dagger drawn on it or something like that, Mike? It did, yeah. The um, the the author of the actual piece stated that there was a a dagger drawn um, on the letter um, and the dagger was dripping with blood and it was written in pencil as well and Mike's done a lot of work in the whole uh, archives uh, for uh, and press reports from Hull and um, if they're not already up on Casebook is 
press product, I'm sure they will be here in the near future, right, Mike? Definitely, yeah, there's a lot to go through, but that, that is one thing that will be, will be getting done at some point. Uh, and uh, Andy Spalick, um, we're running up towards an hour here. Howard was keeping time for us. Um, okay. All right, 75 minutes. 75 minutes. Okay, um, let's uh, go through once more. And anyone else have any uh, questions or comments or anything to bring up? Well, we have Stephen here to, with us today. Well, yeah, I wanted Stephen. to ask. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mike. You, you, no, you go ahead, Andy, and we'll get back. Yeah, go on, Andy. Okay, I just wanted to say that I really appreciate the Casebook Forums uh, and the community, really, that, that it's become. And I think it is just that. It's a, it's a community. And I've gotten to know some, some marvelous people on the Casebook and uh, been able to have the opportunity to come over to London a few times and to meet some of those people and even to meet and rub elbows with some uh, known people. Almost got to meet Paul last time I was there, but we got our dates mixed up a little. But, uh, you know, it's just a neat thing to be able to have that kind of a community. And it's always the next time, Andy. Yeah. What's that? There's always the next time. There's always the next time. Hopefully this summer I'll be there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, good. good. But, good. Yeah. We'll, we'll do it then. We'll make an extra special effort to to try and cross I each other's paths. Yeah. yeah. And Mike and Hall? Yeah, finally from me, Stephen. If there was no such field as Ripperology, what would you be doing? Um, oh, I'm not sure. I've got uh, other sort of side projects that I work on, um, including uh, mostly... Uh, Puzzle websites are kind of a hobby fascination of mine, so I'd, I'd probably be working more on that. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. If it wasn't Jack the Ripper, I probably would be writing about something else that I posted on back in 1996, and someone found it interesting, and I got obsessed with that. I'm, I guess I, I have the, the collector's uh, obsessive personality, I guess, so that, that's part of what drives the casebook is just trying to collect more and more information and, and putting it all together. So if it wasn't Jack the Ripper, I'm sure it would be something else, who knows what. But uh, I have a wide variety of interests, and I'm sure something would have come up. Are there other, any other uh, murder cases that you're um, really interested in on top of Jack the Ripper? No, actually, um, I, I'm not really all that interested in true crime unless it has some, some kind of relation to the, the Jack the Ripper case. Um, as I, as I mentioned before, my, my interest in Jack Thorper is, is not so much the, the crime aspect of it as it is sort of the, the social aspect of it. I'm, I'm really fascinated by the, the times and, and, the, and the place and just sort of learning about how the people lived and, and how the murders affected them and, 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 and did it improve their lives, did it, did it make it worse, uh, did, it, did it usher in any kind of uh, wide-sweeping social changes uh, at, the, at the end of the 19th century. And so these are the questions that really sort of interest me the most and usually sort of make the people I'm talking to start to yawn and fall asleep. But um, <laughs> It is one of those interesting things, though, that, that maddens me, is that we don't actually know anything uh, about the way in which the murders affected people. How did jo Joseph Barnett live the rest of his life? Did he wake up and have nightmares? Uh, if I hadn't have, have deserted Mary Jane, um, you know, would she she'd still be alive? We we don't know any of those sort of things. We, none of those uh, memories uh, seem to have passed down through the family. We can guess That's obviously true. how he how he would have felt, but 
Yeah, it's, it's it's easy to forget that you know these were real people, uh, not just the victims, but the people who were tangentially involved in the case. And you know, it's not that they just came into existence in 1888 and then disappeared in 1889. You know, they had lives before and after, and it's it's very sort of uh, it's it's interesting to to sort of think about. You know, did, did, was this really that big of a deal to them? Um, you know, we think of Jack the Ripper as wow, this was the defining moment of that time period. But, uh, you know, back then, maybe this was just one small aspect of their lives that they really didn't, didn't think much of and didn't really talk to their families about. Or, on the other hand, it, it, there could be a rich oral history in, in several of these families that we just we haven't found yet. Hmm. One just hopes that there is somewhere. It would be nice, it would be lovely to, to, to find this information, even though it's probably something that we would think, well, yep, that's, that's exactly how they would have responded, but... Uh it's all out there, and, and uh, or one would hope that it's all out there. We, we, in some cases, perhaps it's just now too late. If only Dan Fast and Tom Cullen and people like that had actually gone looking for that information, they may well have come across people uh, who are then alive far nearer to the events than we are. It's possibly right. too late now. Yeah, I always regretted the fact that Leonard Matters uh, in 1928 didn't do that. Uh, well, exactly. I mean, and. And he elected not to. I mean, that's 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 yes. the awful thing is is that is that he decided that it was uh, that so many of those stories had been corrupted over the time that it was best not to do that. And isn't that sad? You'd you'd kill for those corrupted stories now. You know, you know, though somewhere there's probably in some newspaper or some periodical there's probably some of those stories that are yet to be discovered. I just bet there are some. Oh, I, I, I'm. It's difficult to think that the the that it's escaped, isn't it? Um, yeah. You have these people so close to the crimes, and uh, surely some journalist somewhere would have just recognized that there was a, a meritable story there somewhere along the lines and, and recorded it. But maybe it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just out there. We, we just hope that it'll be found one day. Well, and since the centenary, it's amazing how much new information has, you know, come to, uh, you, you know, come to uh, the public knowledge now. That we never used it, to have before 1988. It absolutely it is, but but the frightening thought is that just how much information is out there that that hasn't come to light because people don't think it would be of any interest, and and that's the thing that scares me. What what worries me is that you have got all these people um, who maybe are now inheriting uh, grandfather's or great grandfather's photograph collection where there's. Uh, uh, a photograph of Uncle George standing in Dorset Street, and uh, of course they think, "Oh, it's not of any interest to anybody." Whereas we may not be interested to Uncle G- in, in the photograph of Uncle George, but we'd be really interested in that picture of Dorset Street that's behind him in, in that photograph. And, and and it's all that stuff, and it's just not being made available. You'd have thought that as a result of the centenary that uh, and and all the books and the publicity and the movies and things that those people who have got these things would have been coming forward but they don't appear to be. You have to go chasing them down and hunting them down. Uh, Neil Sheldon's shown that. I mean, look at the, look at the relatives that, that he's come across and the photographs and everything else. But he went to them. They didn't go to him. Well, yeah, and so many, uh, so many of them were not aware of uh, their own genealogy. Yeah. But there's going to be all of this. Why, why hasn't Joseph, why haven't Joseph Barnett's descendants uh, turned up and said, look, it, this is this is what I remember being told, and this is a photograph of him, and they must be out there. Look at all the people who are associated with the Ripper crimes, 
and how very, very few of their descendants are known to us and have come forward. That's a good point. Alrighty, well, we've gone quite a bit over an hour, so I'll wrap this up. Um, you've been listening to Rippercast, Episode 8, The Medium is the Message, with our very special guest, Stephen Ryder. I'm glad you were here with us today, Stephen. Glad to be here, thank you. And also joining us was Paul Bag from Kent in the UK, and hopefully, Paul, you can come on the podcast as an interviewee next time. Love to, absolutely. Well, we thank you very much. And Andy Spalick came to us from St. Louis. Pleasure to be here. A pleasure to have you also. And we are going to go down with Mike Cubble in the hole in the UK. It's always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. Always a pleasure having you on. And Robert McLaughlin in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Thanks for being it's on great. again. Hey, you bet. It's great to be here as always, guys. And thanks for all your work that you put in for this podcast. It wouldn't happen without you, believe me. And Howard Brown in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Great show today. An honor to be here. It certainly is. And you can download this podcast at www.rippernet.com. In the podcast section, click on the subscribe link. It'll download to your iTunes music application. And if you have any problems downloading the podcast... Um, email or private message me. Uh, you can reach uh, the show at www.rippernet uh, at mac.com. And we'll be here next week for the uh, episode number nine of Rippercast. So I hope you listen and we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.